At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise can assume ends. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring. In which case, you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. My favorite exchange from the Lord of the Rings. It was my mother's favorite one, too. Noria rest her soul. And it's also our astral guest's favorite exchange. That is Becca Tarnas, who materializes at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss her outstanding new book, Journey to the Imaginal Realm, a reader's guide to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. We'll be gaining titanic revelation soon on both the Gnosis and the Gnosticism of Tolkien, as well as C.G. Jung and other magicians of the mind. History became legend. Legend became myth. In the end, even as this world is a Mordor, where men and orcs have nipples... Gandalf is right in saying there are forces from above and within, always helping us out if we just embrace compassion, understanding, and curiosity. Concerning being trapped in this Mordor and finding our inner Iluvatar, it was Tolkien himself who said that we are, quote, Free captives, undermining shadowy bars, digging the foreknown from experience, and panning the vein of spirit out of sense. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race, and the human race is filled with passion. 
This is AM by Gnostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week, I, your host, Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things. And I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. So honored to have Becca Tarnas in this eternal now. Discussing so many insights from her book, Journey to the Imaginal. One of those insights is our psyche. As Lance Owens, who you'll hear a lot about on this episode and beyond, has said, Gnosis is simply understanding that the psyche is real. The psyche doesn't swim in the brain, but the brain swims in the psyche. And the psyche is that eternal Jordan River flowing into the imaginal, the Bria of the Kabbalah, and the very fullness of the divine. As the Hermeticists and Gnostics contended, we are in the cosmos, and the cosmos is in our minds. As above, so below. The Sethians asserted the psyche, our mind, is the real image of God. And as Lance further has stated, your consciousness is a mixture of the irrational and the rational. That's a fact no secularist can change. You need to believe in things that aren't true. How else can they become? To flow into your psyche, to that fullness of the divine, As Jung and Tolkien did, you have to suspend the rational for a while. Embrace your creativity, your chaos, your childlike daring. Or in other words, take a ride with Hermes, the god of the mind and tricks, into the underworlds of possibility and lost dreams. You must laugh and prank the, quote, logical world. And that logical song, right, Super Tramp? As Robert Frost said, Forgive, O Lord, my little jokes on thee, and I'll forgive thy great big one on me. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great and has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. To ride with Hermes, 
you'll have to play with created images a lot. Cosplay with mythos and madness. A script for a jester's tear. You'll have to suspend your rationality. And then, you need to quest into those images, fueled by the dynamic story you've become. You've woven into the fabric of your ego. But I can't go back. Don't know that you got a choice, son. No man can walk out on his own story. This passage from the Gospel of Philip puts the gnosis of Jung and Tolkien in the open for us to leverage. It goes. Truth did not come into the world naked, but veiled with images and archetypes. Otherwise, it cannot be received. There is a rebirth through the image of rebirth. One must truly be reborn from this image. This is resurrection. In passing through the image, the bridegroom is led into the truth, which is the renewal of all things in their integrity. Furthermore, as the saying goes, an artist is not a special type of person, but every person is a special type of artist. And as George Bernard Shaw said, Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. Or as I say, you know it. Write your own gospel and live your own myth. We see the world the way it really is, and hope that one day all mankind might see the same. What is the world, then? An illusion. One which we can either submit to, as most do, or transcend. What is it to transcend? To recognize nothing is true and everything is permitted. For so many years, I went from psychiatrist to therapist to psychiatrist, trying to find relief. They all said I was bipolar. Some saying my condition was so severe I shouldn't even be functioning. You know what I did that got me out of this existentialist Tartarus? I went union and started to, yes, having a dialogue with my psyche. Through meditation, dream work, artistic expressions, and cosplaying in religious theatrics, many that formed those images and brought out my shadow, I had a dialogue with my psyche. And you know what I found? There was nothing wrong with me and nothing that needed to be cured. You know what crazy is? Crazy is majority rules. Yeah, uh. All I had to do was listen to the shaman song from the collective unconscious. The imaginal for coping skills and keys to alchemical transformation. Ways even to make my, quote, disease work for my benefit instead of my destruction. There is nothing wrong with me. Sure, I have terrible Mountain Doom days when I want it all painted black. When I just want things to fucking end. Hell is empty and all the devils are here. 
just as I have periods when I feel as indestructible as a horny Balrog. It's better to burn out than to fade away. But the ups and downs are less intense and manageable. And in between, I nurture a cosmic serenity that makes me giggle like a hobbit. And Hermes laughs back at me because it's all so amazing. To say yes to one instant is to say yes to all of existence. So have a dialogue with your psyche. You are beautiful and you are just fine when you enter the image and into the truth. Of course, there are those who need heavier treatment for a while. Those who have been severely broken by the Archons. But hey, I survived brutal sexual and physical violence as a child. Losing loved ones around me to violent deaths drug addiction, and the usual tragedies of life like divorce, downsizing, and sickness. I just kept creating myself in gospel and in myth. Yes, these are bruises from fighting. Yes, I'm comfortable with that. I am enlightened. I'm not out of the Lothlorian woods, mind you. But I'm useful to the aeons, and hopefully useful to you. I keep having that dialogue with my psyche because it's real and it's gnosis. Maybe I won't make it in the end, hung like a black scarecrow on the tree of life. But right now I'm awake and, borrowing from Alan Moore's Joker, my past and my present and my future are all multiple choice and thus brimming with endless potential and reinvention. Because of this, I can relate to this quote by Tom Robbins. It's never too late to have a happy childhood. And what if you could go back in time and take all those hours of pain and darkness and replace them with something better? You're not alone. You will never be. I promise you this with all of my soul, my psyche. There is help from above and within in this rescue operation of Sophia. You are not alone. I'm going to show you a world without sin. As a bonus for AB Prime members and patrons at Patreon, I will post my seminal interview with Lance Owens where he also discusses the parallels of Jung and Token, as well as their gnosis and a whole lot of Red Book. If you include Becca's second part, you'll be getting almost two hours of extra content to get you having a dialogue with your psyche. Let us ride with Hermes and create ourselves with unforgettable stories and a memorable interview with Becca Tarnas. I didn't think it would end this way. End? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path. One that we almost take. 
grey rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Becca Tarnas to discuss her book, Journey to the Imaginal Realm, a reader's guide to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. How are you doing, Becca, and welcome to the show. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you. The pleasure and honor is all ours. As we were talking before, I'm very excited for this interview after all these years. As I'm repeating myself, there's nowhere I'd rather be than uh, Middle Earth. And I'm sure uh, we can talk about the reasons why, why it's still so powerful. But uh, with us, too, we've got uh, Vance Sachi, the Moondog. How are you doing, Vance? Oh, I'm hanging in there for a lazy Sunday. I'm in the middle of California and not Middle Earth, but that's close enough, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so is Becca, too. Uh, you guys surviving the fires and the blackouts? Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Becca? We're, we're in the coast, so it's not too much here. We're uh, in Nevada City, so not at the coast, near the Yuba River. Definitely feels like Middle Earth here at times. Fortunately, <laughs> we haven't been touched by the fires, but we have really been affected by the power outages. Oh boy, right. like Mount Doom. <laughs> Hopefully it won't get that way. <laughs> Not quite that bad, but um, at the place where I live, we don't have water when the power goes out. So there is that wish for a little bit of water and a little bit of light, as Sam says. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, we'll definitely try to spread a lot of light with this interview, and we hope things get better over there in California. But let's start with you, Becca. Tell us uh, about when you, in your life, first encountered Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and what it did to you. Well, when I was nine years old, I was in a Waldorf school in San Francisco, and my grade school teacher read us The Hobbit. She read it out loud. And I think there was something actually important in that, that it was coming in in this oral spoken manner and that I got to hear the sounds of the names and the descriptions. I wasn't reading them. I was just t absorbing it through my ears. And I was completely enchanted by the story. And had this profound sense that I had experienced this before, that I'd been in Middle Earth before, Mirkwood, Rivendell, the Lonely Mountain. These names called something forward in me that felt more like remembrance than something that I was encountering for the first time, even though I was encountering it for the first time. And I was fascinated by that feeling. Of course, at nine years old, I didn't have the language to describe it in that way. And I came home and I shared this with my mother. And she said, 
oh, wait till you read The Lord of the Rings. And I actually got an image right when she said that. I remember it very clearly. This image arose through my imagination of three overlapping rings. Behind it, there was a great tree and there was a sunset in the distance. And I didn't think that much of it, but that was the image that I associated with the title, The Lord of the Rings, until I read it. And that was when I was 13 years old for the first time. And it completely overtook my imagination. I had never been swept so deeply into a story. And I had this profound experience of feeling like I was living my life as a a teenager in California. And at the same time, overlaid over that life was Middle Earth, was the memory and feeling and the emotional experience of this profound story. And I just kept pursuing it further and started reading everything that I could get my hands on that Tolkien had written. I was a little bit in denial that Tolkien was a an author, a <laughs> person who had lived at a certain time in history, let alone the 20th century. I wanted to experience this more as received myth. And I delved into the languages as well, wanted to learn Elvish and the Tengwar script and just totally absorbed myself in that world. And it's something that has stayed with me since. And I had the fortune of being able to, I guess you could say, mature that fascination or bring it to the next level when I started studying Tolkien's work in graduate school and in the context of the philosophy of imagination. Very cool. And I can relate. I mean, I was seven when I first read The Hobbit. And I thought it was just an awesome story, but I think I was 12 when I read the entire Lord of the Rings. And like you, it was, uh, yeah, it was being swept away by something more real than real. And my parents used to tell me I used to uh, talk in a very uh, nor in a very cogent but alien language at night and other weird things after I read Lord of the Rings. And this seems to happen a lot. It's uh, really uh, touched so many people in so many ways and your work really starts to go deep into why into the the, the power of it but first uh, how did you come about to eventually writing journey to the imaginal realm what was the process that brought this book about the process that brought it about was kind of first and foremost it came out of a class uh, a course that i taught last fall, uh, the autumn of 2018, for an online platform called Neura Learning, N-U-R-A Learning. And it was a course that was simply designed to guide the reader through Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And it was a combination of pre-recorded lectures and live classes. So I wrote out all of those pre-recorded lectures. And as I was nearing the end of the course, I realized, my goodness, I've written hundreds of pages. And it was from that realization and actually sharing that publicly that the uh, press, Revelor Press, reached out and said, would you like to turn it into a book? So that's the kind of simple story of how Journey to the Imaginal Realm came into book form. The deeper story is that 
this work comes out of my dissertation research. And I did my PhD at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. And I focused on a synchronicity between Carl Gustav Jung, the depth psychologist, his red book, and parallels between J.R.R. Tolkien's red book of Westmarch, which is the book that in the context of The Lord of the Rings and Hobbit and Silmarillion, that all of those stories are written down in. And I noticed this parallel pretty much as soon as Jung's Red Book was published in 2009, just simply the parallel between the two names. And I had this intuition that what if there's something more there? What if there is something in the content between Jung's Red Book and Tolkien's Red Book? And I'd already started down a path of wanting to compare the two when I came across an interview that you did with Lance Owens on this very channel. And in listening to that interview where he talked about Jung's Red Book and the timing between that and Tolkien's Book of Ishness, which was a series of extraordinary drawings that Tolkien began in 1911, 1912. Jung began his Red Book period in 1913. This is all leading up to the beginning of the Great War, uh, the First World War that broke out in 1914. And when Lance Owens spoke about that parallel in timing, and he also touched on the fact that they each had a red book, that they each used that name, I felt this spark awaken uh, that, aha, there's something here. And I listened to everything I could that Lance Owens had put out on this subject and started exploring it further and realized very few people had been looking into these parallels. And so that became the subject of my dissertation research, my PhD. And I just finished that last year in the spring of 2018. And so all the ideas informing that dissertation, particularly ideas around what is the nature of the imagination? What is the imaginal realm? Which is a term that I took from the uh, philosopher and Sufi scholar Henri Corbin, who is a contemporary of Carl Jung and James Hillman and others. And all of that research and the shaping of my thought and ideas went into this new book, Journey to the Imaginal Realm. So it's deeper origins lie in the parallels between Jung's Red Book and Tolkien's Red Book and the research I did there. Well, I'm so happy. Congratulations on everything in your book. At first, I was worried, Beck. I was like, well, I hope it's not one of those uh, books that people who've never read the entire series that they just read so they can brag at parties, you know, impress people at parties. You see those all the time. Uh, but your book is very rich. It's not uh, just a summary, but you bring in so many wonderful insights on Token, on what was going on. Again, you get uh, you parallel to Jung, uh, to Corbin, and all that. So it's it's an incredible read, and I really, really enjoyed it. But it's um, also Lance, of course, as uh, we both admire his work, and uh, we've both realized it's almost like 
Jung and Tolkien, almost like these days, it's almost like I can't have one without the other. They're always coming into my head when I'm thinking of either one. But these are two figures that they never met, right? Or they never knew of each other's work. But at the same time, they really have extremely parallel lives and uh, techniques of how they went about life and brought about their ideas. It really is extraordinary, these parallels between the two of them. And they didn't meet, it's true. I don't think that Jung would have known of Tolkien at all. The Lord of the Rings didn't really become well-known until actually after Jung's death. It was published, The Lord of the Rings was published in 1954 and 55. And Jung passed away in 1962. And yet there are these just extraordinary connections between the two of them. I do know that Tolkien later on knew of Jung and something that Lance and I have even talked about is the fact that in Tolkien's notes for his famous lecture and essay on fairy stories, he jotted down Jung's name twice. It's in the handwritten notes. And Jung in the 1930s and 40s and 50s would certainly have been discussed in the intellectual circles that Tolkien was a part of. The Oxford Inklings, for example, I'm sure Owen Barfield and C.S. Lewis and the others who were there were bringing in discussions of Jung at, at various points. But from everything I've looked at, everything I've gleaned, I don't think that Jung was a primary influence, a direct external influence on Tolkien, especially in those early years when he was writing the stories that would come to make up the Silmarillion, for example, or the Hobbit. And I don't think really that they would have consciously shaped the writing of the Lord of the Rings. And so that speaks to something deeper. That speaks to something that Jung and Tolkien are pointing toward, whether we call it the collective unconscious or the realm of fairy. This is something that they are intuiting, experiencing, awakening to that can't simply be chalked up to an external influence of ideas. It's something deeper than that. It's something I think that's more profound. Yes, they were both tapping into something, as you say, powerful. And uh, what do you think, as Lance maybe speculated, maybe as two very sensitive individuals, uh, definitely mystics, uh, for lack of better words, the incoming horror of the butchery and the collective pain of World War One might have been something that they both, uh, well, both could understand and and affected them, open up their channels. I mean, like uh, we know Jung went through a depression and before that when he wrote the Red Book and that was before World War I, although people say it's because of his breaking up with Freud. And I believe uh, Tolkien was having experiences with uh, voices talking to him just as voices were talking to Jung when he was writing the Seven Sermons to the Dead. What do you think? Do you think World War I, they were both prescient of this great dark, Time that was coming? I think that we certainly can't underestimate the influence of the First World War on each of them, not just, again, externally, but the, the zeitgeist, the 
archetypal atmosphere of that period in history and that they were both deeply influenced by it. If we look at Jung, the way that the visions were coming through him, first his profound visionary experience that repeated twice of the Great Flood covering Europe and the utter destruction that that showed and how he felt, you know, perhaps he was going insane, perhaps he was going mad or that he was breaking into a psychosis. And then the affirmation that Jung experienced when the war itself broke out and this realization that what was unfolding for him internally in 1913 and throughout 1914 until the end of that summer when the war was declared, that his internal experience was mirroring something outward. And at the beginning of the Red Book, Jung's Red Book, he says that he asked for a sign that the spirit of the depths ruled the inner world and the outer world. And that sign, on the one hand, I think would have been his vision of the great flood, but the other sign, of course, is is the war itself and how the war really was uh, prophesied in some way by Jung's visions and dreams and then also the active imagination fantasies that he consciously engaged with. And in terms of Tolkien, he was you could say even more affected by the war because he fought in it. He was part of it. And as he says in the, the foreword to the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings isn't an allegory for the second world war by any means. It is far more shaped and influenced by the first world war. And he acknowledges that all but one of his closest friends was dead by 1918, by the time the war ended. So the effect that that would have on on his psyche and internal experience is just extraordinary. But we also have to, with both of them, with both Jung and Tolkien, have to look to before the war, before the war broke out. Because with Tolkien, he begins these drawings that he records in what he called the Book of Ishness, the series of extraordinary symbolic, imaginal drawings that have no descriptions or explanations. They're simply titles, these profound titles like the Back of Beyond or Silent, Enormous and Immense or Wickedness or Eeriness all of these different titles that give some illumination of what is illustrated in these drawings, the end of the world or uh, beyond these, these various images. And they just give us a glimpse into Tolkien's psyche at that time that something powerful was moving within him that he couldn't capture yet in language and yet he could express it somehow in image, that his imagination was being opened up in this very profound way, uh, beginning in late 1911, 1912, 
definitely very active 1913, 14, 15. And he worked on the Book of Ishnis, adding illustrations to it all the way through 1928. And this parallels exactly the years that Jung was working on his red book, 1913 to 1930. So something began for each of them even before the war. And I think we have to look to a multiplicity of factors, of influences, both internal and external, of uh, what may have been coming through for them at those times. And, and I know that you brought up Tolkien hearing words, and this is something that Lance Owens has explored a lot, and it's been great to speak, have conversations with him about this. He takes that idea primarily from the fact that Tolkien writes about ghost words, what he calls ghost words, or words coming through in two unfinished stories, The Lost Road, which he wrote in the middle of the 1930s, and then The Notion Club Papers, which he wrote in earlier in the 1940s. And both of them deal a lot with language, imagination, dream, true dreams, or true waking visions. And it's interesting that Tolkien didn't end up finishing both of those stories. And while many of the layers of it are clearly fictional, and we have to hold them in that way, they do point to something about what Tolkien's experience perhaps was, what we can glean from his letters too. So I'm always very careful in the speculation about what Tolkien's experience really was because he's so ambiguous. He never really says it clearly, but people like Lance Owens and the scholar Verlin Flieger and others have speculated that there may, may be something along the lines of visionary experience or what he calls fairy and drama, maybe hearing words, what he calls ghost words in those particular stories, something coming through, something that he's shaping into art. And if you layer that with, you know, his theory of sub-creation, as he speaks about it on fairy stories, then this picture starts to emerge. Uh, it's like we get a glimpse of something, to use, to use a word that Tolkien loves, glimpse, just get a glimpse of an other world. Well said, yes. And even before that, Becca, we can certainly see other situations that uh, inform Tolkien or influence him. And you bring him up very well in your book because you write, Tolkien lost his father when he was young. And that seems to have likely translated into uh, strong, comforting male characters in his books. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I guess Gandalf is the ultimate uh, daddy figure. So is Strider. So are others. So that makes sense. And how did his mother uh, influence, maybe influence his writing? That's such a good point about those strong male figures, such as Gandalf and Aragorn. And it's also noteworthy that, Tolkien was an orphan after the age of 12. His his mother passed away when he was 12 years old. His father when he was uh, four, just turned four years old. And so many of his heroes are orphans themselves, whether it's Frodo or Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, or if we look into the Silmarillion, uh, Turin Turumbar and uh, Beren and so many others the figures who are the most prominent, their parents aren't there to guide them. Uh, 
And so there is this seeking after of another guide. And certainly his mother was probably one of the primary influences on his life. There's a wonderful book by Carol Zaleski and Philip Zaleski called The Fellowship. And it's a interwoven biography of the Inklings, of J.R.R. Tolkien, of C.S. Lewis, of Charles Williams, and Owen Barfield. And as they introduce Tolkien, they begin with his mother, the essential role that she played in his life and how much she taught him, what her capacities were. She taught him art and calligraphy, you know, drawing and painting and uh, penmanship, all of which he was extremely skilled at, especially penmanship. When we look at his handwriting or at the, the different scripts, such as the Tengwar or runes that he developed. She also introduced him to fairy story and myth, and she introduced him to languages. She taught him Latin and French and German when he was young and opened him up to the world of language, really encouraged that side of him. And Tolkien ended up learning, being able to speak 19 languages of this world. And he went on to invent another 14 of his own. And if you read some of his, I mean, really, if you read anything that he wrote, language is at the heart of it, whether it's any of the Middle Earth uh, narratives, language informs all of the names, as well as actual dialogue or poetry in Elvish languages or Dwarvish or Rohiric. But if you look at these unfinished stories that I mentioned, the Notion Club papers or the um, the Lost Road, the discussion of language is so essential to that. And you get this feeling that different languages were almost transparent to Tolkien, that he could read their meaning almost symbolically, like an astrologer can read a birth chart or like a tarot reader can read the symbolism of a, a card or a tarot spread. There's this almost like a shift in consciousness that Tolkien has where he can see through language to their, to its meaning. And he really is a true expression of a philologist. The etymology of philology is a love of language, philo, love, and logos, language, the word. And I don't know if I could even think of another linguist who was operating at Tolkien's level where he had that capacity to understand the true meaning of words. He certainly wasn't a nominalist. Words for him carried their inherent meaning within them. And in that way, he actually is an expression of some of Owen Barfield's ideas that the word carries its meaning inherently and that words emerge from primal reality itself. And that was something that Tolkien had access to in a way that 
I think modern and postmodern consciousness can't even really fully grasp. We can just intimate it when we see what Tolkien is capable of. Well said. Yeah, it reminds me, I believe Barfield said, uh, when we started to write and create language, we virtually changed reality around us. Our brains were forever rewired. So I think Tolkien was a shaman of this creating realities. And I should mention too, I always have to mention this uh, for those uh, people are probably tired of this, but uh, in the Red Book, it is not Philemon who is Jung's guide. It is Simon Magus. And I am very confident that one day we're going to find some uh, lost letter of token and we're going to find out that Simon Magus was guiding him too. But we all have our fantasies, Becca. But for uh, Vance, do you have a question for Becca? Yeah, I had a question. You brought up uh, Simon Magus and uh, Tolkien was known to be very devout Catholic. And yet there are so many Gnostic elements to the Lord of the Rings. What are your thoughts about that? Mm. Well, it's, I mean, we can especially see that in his cosmogony, his creation myth, the Ainu Lindale, or the music of the Ainur, which he first wrote in 1919 and then went on to revise over several, the next several decades. And those Gnostic elements, that really makes me wonder how much, again, to use this phrase, how much was coming through him rather than being consciously or externally influenced. And I haven't come across any evidence of what, you know, of whether Tolkien was reading any Gnostic texts. Of course, Gnostic texts were available to Jung um, even before he wrote his Red Book, of course, many more emerged later on, the Nag Hammadi Library and so forth. But from what I have come across, and I'm certainly open to correction and hearing others' uh, research in this area, I don't know if Tolkien was externally influenced by any Gnostic texts, which brings up instead something of an internal influence, that whatever the, the spirit was that moved the Gnostics and informed their spiritual experiences and expressions of those experiences may also have been informing Tolkien. There's a living myth there that can't conform to Catholic dogma as it had been codified by the time Tolkien was uh, living by it. And so in that way, maybe there's a, a contradiction or maybe we're seeing simply the inner and outer, the esoteric and the exoteric expressions of a deeper interconnected tradition. Yeah. Did the church uh, say anything about it? I mean, what did the Catholic luminaries of the time uh, say about his writings? when he came out with Lord of the Rings and so forth? The, what I've heard so far and what you can see in his letters is that he's expressing to some people that this is a fundamentally Catholic work uh, or Christian work. And he said it wasn't consciously that in 
the first telling, but it was in the revising. He's speaking specifically about the Lord of the Rings there. The only place where I know he received some resistance from a member of the Catholic Church was around the idea that elves reincarnate. And Tolkien had a wonderful argument and answer to this uh, gentleman who was pushing back against this idea because reincarnation, of course, isn't part of uh, Catholic dogma. And he actually said that, you know, who are we to say what possibilities God might explore? And that we can't definitively say whether or not reincarnation is a possibility within God's creativity. And I love that openness of his approach, not mm-hmm. limiting God's creativity in that way. And I think that also comes from the fact that he didn't want to be limited. When he speaks about fantasy, he speaks about it as a human right and that our desire to create, our desire as human beings to create is because we're made in the image of God. And he says, we make in our measure and our derivative mode because we are made and made in the image and likeness of a maker. That's a quote from his essay on fairy stories. And so his inclination toward fantasy, toward subcreation, toward that kind of world building creativity, he saw as continuing God's creativity, that fantasy or secondary worlds are actually the efflorescence of the primary creation, that it's building further on that. So it's, and and he saw reincarnation as a possibility within that ongoing efflorescence of creativity. So I'm sure that there are some in uh, the church hierarchies who might not agree with that, but from Tolkien's perspective, it wasn't out of alignment for him. It wasn't out of alignment with his own beliefs and his own relationship to uh, Christianity and uh, toward the the Christian God. At the same time, Becca, as you write, his Catholicism might have tempered whatever gnosis he had inside because, again, you uh, present the fact that in his original cosmology, it was much more dualistic. I think Melkor was uh, more powerful. Again, he's sort of this uh, demiurge slash Sophia character, obvious one. And again, Lance Owens would agree with this. But then later on, he sort of tempers it or he softens the, the Gnosticism of his cosmology. It's true. And I, I will say that my thinking on this has certainly been very much informed by Lance Owens, who's thought about this a great deal and done that textual comparison between the music of the Ainur as it's presented in the Book of Lost Tales, that original telling, and the later version, the Ainur Lindale, which is published in the Silmarillion that was edited by Christopher Tolkien, published in 1977, so so much later. And there are those, those differences, certainly, between them, where 
in the first version, Melkor, or as he's called in the first version, Melko, is impatient of the void, impatient of the darkness, wants to bring forth his own creativity, and that it's at odds with Iluvatars, with the one God. And so they are a little more on par in that way. Whereas in the later version of the Ainu Lindale, it's that Melkor's thoughts, what brings the discord in the music is actually his difference with his brethren, with the other Ainur. So you, it kind of gets brought down a level from the first version to the second version. And yet there is so much that's similar between those two versions. Well, it is somewhat softened from the first to the second version. The, the core images are there, and much of it extraordinarily isn't revised. So there's something in the music of the Ainur and that creation myth that Tolkien didn't want to let go of. And there are parallels as well between that creation myth and both tellings and other cosmogonies within the Christian tradition. I actually had a wonderful experience just last week co-presenting with uh, one of my former professors, Jacob Sherman, who was my dissertation chair. And we presented on the cosmogony Mogany of Hildegard von Bingen, the uh, 12th century German mystic. And she was uh, an extraordinary visionary. She had these direct visions that she recorded um, in something very much like a red book as well with illustrations wow. that were done by uh, the, the nuns in her, um, in her abbey. She was an abbess. And the parallels between her creation myth that, that she directly channeled and she spoke about how she channeled it uh, and Tolkien's cosmogony are extraordinary as well. In some ways, even more parallels between those two and Jung's Seven Sermons to the Dead and Tolkien's Music of the Ainur. So these creation myths pop up in multifaceted form throughout history. And I think that we can start to perceive a common core between them, that there's various differences. But what is interesting about Hildegard's cosmogony, there's also music within it and the choirs of angels and, you know, the one God and the, the singing angels in comparison with Tolkien's Iluvatar and the singing Ainur. There's also the parallel with those two that creation will be completed and healed by the, the joining in of that choir of humanity. So in Hildegard's telling, it's the 10th choir. And that is when humanity joins the singing of the angels and a kind of redemptive recreation. And likewise in Tolkien's creation myth, it's that the children of Iluvatar, elves and men or elves and human beings 
will sing in the final music, which will be an even greater song than the creation music. And Hildegard was doing all this and having her visionary experiences within the context of the Catholic Church. And her work was sanctioned and she's also a woman doing it in, in the medieval era, which in itself is an extraordinary uh, breakthrough and Indeed. somewhat of an anomaly. So I feel like more and more of these kinds of parallels and visionary experiences throughout history will, will keep emerging. Nicely said. Yes. And beyond uh, Lance, uh, you quote Carol Fry from her work, the music about the throne of Iluvatar. So she makes some very interesting Gnostic parallels. So it's all there for the audience. It's certainly more in uh, Becca's book, but well, probably one thing we should address Becca is the concept of the imaginal. And I'm quoting you uh, from your book journey to the imaginal realm. You say that the imaginal is a world that is discovered or maybe it was token, but you do write that imagination quote connects us to the whole cosmos linking matter, psyching spirit. I think that's, it's a beautiful thing, but can we also say the imaginal is perhaps the collective unconscious or what would you say? Mm, that's such a good question. Yeah, no, it's complicated. <laughs> it is a complicated question. And I honestly cannot presume to have the answers. I love exploring these topics and discovering ever new vistas and finding what others have said on it. So really this is speculation and uh, curiosity and interest and, and some experience as well. But I'll, I'll do my best to give a, a coherent answer. <laughs> awesome. So the imaginal realm, as I mentioned, and, and you brought up as well, really comes from that term from Henri Corbin, who speaks of the mundus imaginalis, the world of the imagination. And he's drawing this from Sufi mysticism and the idea of the imaginal realm as a realm in between, a realm that is in between the world of the physical, the material world, and the realm of abstract thought, the completely immaterial. So there's something about the imaginal realm that is both material and immaterial. And in all our descriptions of it, we have to kind of use both and language, which is why thinking of it as a linking force or a linking place, something that holds together uh, psyche and cosmos and spirit and all these different levels feels uh, perhaps apt. And as far as an equation of the imaginal realm with the collective unconscious, or to use some of Tolkien's terminology with fairy. I really wanted that to be the case. And this was something that I encountered in my dissertation work. I wanted a direct equivalence to say the collective unconscious is the imaginal realm, is fairy. And I was challenged on that. Thank goodness for uh, the uh, the dissertation committee and the way they they hold our idealism in check. And I was challenged on this idea by my external reader Daniel Polikoff, who 
challenged me to bring a more nuanced picture. And first of all, to acknowledge that all of these ideas are being expressed by individuals, the collective unconscious, particularly by Jung, and uh, of course, those in the field of Jungian in-depth psychology, and the imaginal realm as articulated by Henri Corbin, or in a very different way by the archetypal psychologist James Hillman. And then fairy is articulated by Tolkien. And that maybe we can't make a definitive ontological equation between all of these different notions or concepts. But by looking at them in relationship to each other, they start to give us a parallax view on something. And that by parallax view, I mean, you know, in the way that we can understand where, to use some scientific terminology, how far away a star is by measuring its distance from the Earth when we're on one side of our orbit versus when we're on the other side, and how by holding those two different perspectives, we are able to gain a more accurate picture. And so instead of equating, it's more like seeing each of Jung's and Hillman's and um, Tolkien's and Corbin's perspectives on what this realm is. Well, we're getting their participatory engagement in it. And so I started to apply an idea that was introduced to me by the scholar Jorge Ferrer. And Jorge Ferrer comes out of the the world of transpersonal psychology, transpersonal theory. And I won't go into that in too much detail, but he speaks about co-creation and participation. And we can even trace the lineage of our participatory epistemology to throw out some super big academic <laughs> words. Um, a, a participatory or co-creative way of engaging with the world. We can trace that all the way back even to Plato. Um, but it's the idea that we as individuals or we as cultures, we, we bring who we are in our own situated individuality or our cultural context. We bring that into a relationship with something that is a primordial mystery. And in the engagement between the two, something new arises. So I'm speaking about this kind of abstractly. So I'll try and make it a little more clear and, and apply it exactly to what we're talking about. If we think of the collective unconscious as something that is actually unconscious, when we bring our consciousness to bear on it, then something is called forth. Something is elicited or enacted from that. And it's neither totally ours, but it's neither completely collective. It's something in between. And I think that's what the imaginal realm is. So it's something that it's a place uh, that isn't physical, but is in part co-created by our own faculty of the imagination, our own consciousness, engaging with a non-determined 
spiritual mystery or an archetypal mystery. Jung talks about the collective unconscious as being structured by archetypes, by the primordial archetypes. But as soon as our consciousness comes into relationship with them, then they take on a concrete form or a more specific form. And it's that interrelationship between the two, something that we can't access without shifting it. And in some ways, we're even broaching on the field of quantum physics here, that it's the experimenter working with the experiment that actually affects the outcome of the experiment. It's maybe the same idea that our conscious imagination in relationship to the collective unconscious calls forward the imaginal realm. And that's why it looks a little bit different to Jung or to Tolkien or to Hildegard or to any of us who engage with, with that, that there's something in common and what's in common we could call the archetypes or whatever other name seems most appealing. Um, that's what's in common, but there's also something in particular or specific that is shaped by our own relationship to it. And maybe a, a kind of concrete example of this could be that Philemon for Jung or Gandalf for Tolkien, we can see an archetypal core behind them. And, and we could call it the wise old man archetype, but maybe we could even see it as something broader than that, something like the Senex or Saturn, um, to use that more um, broad archetypal language. And, you know, perhaps it's, it's Simon Magus as well, that they all have these different names that are called forward by whichever individual or whichever culture is engaged in that, but that there's something indefinable that stands behind it, that's co-created with it. And I think maybe one last point on this, something that's important about that co-creative or, or participatory perspective, when we think of visionary experience, or we think of something like Jung's Red Book, is that it accounts for the biases that those individuals might bring to interpreting or understanding what they've seen in these visionary states. It, it accounts for some of the, the cultural context and shaping. And when we come across things that are inherently problematic, whether they're, you know, misogynist or, um, you know, gender essentialism or, or racist or uh, these different things that that's not ascribed to the primary spiritual vision, but rather that's co-created or shaped by the individual's biases or prejudices or cultural context or their time in history. And so we can try and glean through that what is coming through from the spiritual realm, but not also not then dismiss the vision because there are things that we realize were shaped by those particular um, cultural contexts or the, the time and history or even the individual's particular biases and prejudices.
That was really well said, very innovative, and I, I like it a lot, very useful. But I think for many people to be useful, we want to learn how token tapped into the imaginal realm. I mean, uh, Jung obviously taught, he taught about the active imagination. You can look at the Gnostics, Neoplatonists, other artists, they left their, their rituals and so forth. But what about token, Becca? What did he do to, did he have anything close to the active imagination, a process or a way to get his mind into an altered state? Hmm. I wish he had been so clear. <laughs> <laughs> Left a I, I BuzzFeed he... article, you know, top 10 things I do in the morning. <laughs> yeah, my creative process. Um, <laughs> I, I wish he had done that, and but it, it does make it so much more exciting to try and glean what was happening for him. And we can glean that from his letters, from his stories, and from the way that you know, from these hints that he did leave behind, even from these drawings in the Book of Ishness. And there are a few key things that he said where he spoke of not inventing. He said, I've, no, I've ceased to invent and I wait till the story simply writes itself. Or he had this feeling that the story was already there somewhere that he just had to uncover it, that he just had to discover it. And the place where I think we have the best opportunity of understanding what his creative process was like is by going to his essay on fairy stories, and particularly the section called fantasy. And I have reread this section countless times. And <laughs> every single time I do... I think, did I get it right? Am I interpreting this correctly? <laughs> Is that really what he meant? And because it's so hard to glean what he really meant, I do want to respect the fact he didn't totally want to reveal it because something that precious, to use an important word for him, should be protected and should be respected. So again, I'm speculating a little bit here uh, from everything I've been able to read and, and come across. But in that section, he describes subcreation. And this is a neologism, neologism it's, it's his own word, invention, subcreation. And he describes a two step process where there is imagination or the arising of images from the imagination, the image-making faculty, as he calls it. But there needs to be something else, and he calls this art. And I really see that as the emergence of images through the imagination, and then the conscious shaping of it by the skilled human artist or author. So my sense, and then he, he, the uh, result of that, the sub-creative art is what Tolkien calls fantasy. And he's got countless definitions for the word fantasy. The one that I think is most um, both clear and ambiguous in true Tolkienian fashion is that fantasy is the making or glimpsing of other worlds. 
right there in that sentence, you get the ambiguity he's holding. It's the making or glimpsing of other worlds. So if we think about that two-step process of subcreation, it's the glimpsing of other worlds that is the arising through the imagination of the primary image. And then it's the making of other worlds that's the shaping of it so that it can be expressed coherently to somebody else. He wasn't content just to have disconnected images or disconnected pieces of stories. He needed to make it consistent and coherent. And that's why he revised and rewrote so much. I mean, we now, thanks to Christopher Tolkien, have the drafts of the the Lord of the Rings. They're published in the latter volumes of the history of Middle Earth. So we can see his process and we can see what just emerges in this kind of primary way and then what needed to be reshaped and reworked and finding the exact wording to express it, to convey it. And I think it's that second step, the art, the revising, the careful shaping that is what allows us as the readers actually to enter back into the vision, to enter back into that first step, the images arising from the imagination. I think that's why when we read The Lord of the Rings, it is so immersive because he isn't just expressing a primary vision. He's giving it to you in a way that you can enter back in. And he even spoke about how literature is the the best form for conveying that. He said that literature is more progenitive because it works from mind to mind. And that when we, for example, when we look at a picture uh, that a painter has made, we see their particular depiction of whatever it is they're expressing. But when we read an author's words and they describe, and I'm paraphrasing Tolkien right now, when they describe the hill and the river and the valley, then we see our own river and hill and valley. And in some ways, a blend of every hill and river and valley that we've ever witnessed in our lives But furthermore, we tap into, and and when Tolkien writes about this, he capitalizes these words, the hill, the river, the valley, that were the first expression of the word. And when he says that, he's not using this word archetype or archetypal, but that's what he's gesturing toward. He's gesturing toward the platonic form of hill or the platonic idea of river or valley that archetypal essence that all the particular hills and rivers and valleys are expressions of. So for Tolkien, literature is able to convey that archetypal. And here again, I think we can kind of look at the literature as, as the art that expresses it and as the, the archetypal as that primary imaginal form Again, looking at that two-step process of, of sub-creation. He also speaks very rarely 
I definitely wish you'd talked about this more, this idea of fairy and drama. And he speaks about it in that same essay on fairy stories. And he speaks about it as well in his unfinished tale, The Notion Club Papers. He also calls it elvish drama or elven drama. And elven drama is something that is, it's the experience of being in a vision or a world that some other mind is weaving. And the closest we can really come to understanding that is something along the lines of visionary experience, that fully immersive kind of experience of having images arise and believing utterly that they are true. And he ascribes this idea of fairy and drama as perhaps this is the art form of the elves. The elves create fairy and drama. And if we mortal human beings witness a fairy and drama, we believe we are in some other world. This is the highest achievement of fantasy, according to Tolkien. It's true enchantment. It's beyond a suspension of disbelief. It's actual belief of being in a secondary world. And while he never definitively says, I've experienced this, I've had these visionary experiences, people like Verlin Flieger or Lance Owens certainly take it as evidence that he probably did. And Verlin Flieger writes about this in her wonderful essay, but what did he really mean? She is so good at probing into that ambiguity that Tolkien expresses. And it seems also that maybe that's what the Ishnesses, those drawings are pointing toward, that he is giving visual form to some kind of experience of crossing a threshold. Almost all of the Ishnesses, in some way or another, depict a threshold and crossing over it, whether it's end of the world, where there's a little figure stepping off a cliff into uh, an extraordinary scene of sun and moon and stars and the sea and, and walking forward, walking forward on an invisible road or what Tolkien called the straight road, or whether it's his drawings before and afterwards that show a megalithic doorway and then the other side of that doorway, um, or whether it's, you know, drawings like beyond which show a, a road going into the distance and a kind of bridge that disappears into the mountains or my personal favorite uh, his drawing the back of beyond which i first saw in the bodleian library in oxford and it wasn't published yet so i wasn't allowed to talk about it when i was first researching it <laughs> but it's now finally been published uh just last year in the book tolkien maker of middle earth so if anyone gets that book, it's on page 41. Um, and the back of Beyond shows this little figure peering out of a window. Um, and behind that window is, is a landscape with a road. You see these figures walked along it. And he's peering out. We don't know what he's looking at. You can just imagine what he might be looking at. And I think it's significant that Tolkien did these drawings in 1912, just before he started. Uh, writing the first poems of Middle-earth and 
a few years before writing the first stories of Middle Earth. And he does these two drawings, End of the World, which show that figure stepping off a cliff, which Lance has done such wonderful analysis of. And then right on the back of that drawing is the back of Beyond. And it's this, it almost looks like the same little figure. He's got a kind of funny nose and he's peering out of this window. (laughs) And what is he looking at? And this is completely my projection, but what I love to imagine that he might be looking at is that he's come to a doorway uh, at the edge of the world or the end of the world. And perhaps he's gazing out of, out at the vast cosmos of the starry night or, or some other realm that all he has to do is take that risk and step out of that doorway. So now as we're ending, uh, for the audience, as always, I will have Becca's information on the show notes uh, everywhere the show appears. But is there anything you want to mention to the audience about your website or courses or anything like that, Becca, you want to share? Sure. Well, everything pretty much that I do is available on my website. It's beccatarnas.com. Pretty easy to find. And I actually have another publication that's coming out this month. I'm the co-editor of a journal. It's called Archi, the Journal of Archetypal Cosmology. And uh, the seventh issue I'm the editor of, and I'm bringing that out. So for those who are interested in in the archetypal perspective and astrology, that's something new that that's coming out as well. So it's kind of fun to have two books out within a month of each other, uh, the journey to the imaginal realm and, and that one. And um, I'll be having uh, a few courses happening next year, next spring um, that will be, be mentioned on my website. So I won't, go into too much detail there. One of them is called Music of the Spheres and um, is talking about music and archetypal astrology. So um, that's a, a little taste of some of the things that, that I will be up to. Wonderful. And again, I highly recommend Journey to the Imaginal Realm. It's, uh, again, it's useful for anybody and for any seeker out there but we have come at the end first i'd like to say thanks vance for keeping us company on this journey to mount doom oh it was a wonderful experience and i enjoyed hearing about tolkien and his amazing powers of traversing the imaginal Yes. yes, Becca, thank you very much for coming on Aeon Bytenostic Radio. And again, really enjoyed your book and good luck with everything. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to speak with you, with both of you. And um, really, I'm just so delighted that I'm even getting to have this conversation with you. As I mentioned at the beginning, it was your interview with Lance Owens and talking about Jung's Red Book. and. Uh, Tolkien's Book of Ishness that affirmed for me that there was something there in that intuition, that there was something between the two red books. And um, here we are many years later, (laughs) and I just feel um, that past self of mine is in awe that I get to be here now. Oh, the pleasure is all ours. And I am so grateful and honored that I could be a tool of your active imaginal world that uh, this was meant to happen. So this is great news. And I mean, for the audience, I think Lance has agreed to appear uh, next spring before the black book comes out. So 
you know he's going to have a lot of cool insights. I can't wait to hear them. That's a momentous occasion that we've all been waiting for with the uh, the publication of the Black Books. Yes, yes. Uh, again, so much more to come. So many more revelations. So these are these are good times. But again, thanks, Becca, and good luck with everything. My pleasure, and thank you as well. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our interview with Becca Tarnas. Yes, even after all these years, there's no place I'd rather be than Middle Earth. I hope you're having a better dialogue with your own psyche now. In our second part, we continue the great quest of finding out how Tolkien found inspiration to write his, quote, fiction, his very creative process and rituals. Becca continues to provide amazing insights. I ask her whether Tolkien himself might have been bipolar, and Becca's answer is startling. Of course, Becca provides many lessons of the Lord of the Rings that we can use today. As the Archons continue to murder the planet and our individuality, we break down many of the symbols and themes in the Lord of the Rings. From the Ring of Power, to Sauron, to the Elves, to much more. And what are some of the central esoteric themes in Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's other books? And mucho, mucho más. As mentioned in the intro, I will post my seminal interview with Lance Owens, where he also discusses the parallels of Jung and Tolkien, as well as their Gnosis and a whole lot of Red Book. If you include Becca's second part, you'll be getting almost two hours of extra content. So please become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon. If you find this content valuable, please help us keep growing this Red Pill Cafeteria. I am 100% audience supported and thus will never sell out as I grant you the wisdom of the Gnostics you won't find anywhere else. A mere $5.99 a lunar cycle, or really whatever you want to pledge a month on Patreon. This is where you finally throw the ring of the Demiurge into the lava of your rising individuality. Please go to, you got it, the God Above God Dad Cam for how to get this and all other full shows, as well as other wonderful bonuses. If you just want to support with shekels via PayPal or the U.S. Mail, head on to my homepage as well, or just message me. And as I always say, if you've got holes in your pockets due to the monkey shines of Urukai, let me know, and I'll send you any show on the Aragon House. Let's continue together in our Middle Earths to the wonder that is the imaginal. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. Hello and goodbye as always.
you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.